Welcome to Democracy Rules, a podcast series that focuses on the me in democracy and how the idea of the self defines and is defined by the democratic structures within which we function. Welcome to the Democracy Rules podcast where we explore democracy inside out. This is Prakar Bhartiya, social entrepreneur and co-founder of Indian School of Democracy and your host for the podcast. This podcast is part of my dream to connect hearts across the country and facilitate the work of truth and reconciliation. The world of today is a technology-driven world. Where on one hand, technology has democratized the flow of information by giving a voice to all citizens, on the other, it has also unleashed a wave of misinformation and vicious trolling by enabling people to hide behind virtual identities. Those social media provides a wide space for women to build their own communities and for their voices to be amplified it also puts them at a greater risk of stalking and harassment the intersection of gender and technology is a space of both greater empowerment and greater vulnerability in this episode i'll be in conversation with nishta satyam the current head of office for Timor Leste and UN Women the entity of United Nations that is dedicated to working towards gender equality and women's empowerment she was the former deputy country representative for UN Women in India and the youngest woman to head a country office in UN Women amongst 193 countries Nishta is an unapologetic feminist a trained economist with a keen interest in applied macroeconomics and fiscal policy prior to her career with UN she worked with leading firms such as KPMG and American Express as an economist as a futurist and feminist she is a loud advocate of the urgency to mainstream women across the marketplace workplace and community as a policy expert to governments nishtha's interest lies in the intersection of policy politics and people to foster lasting change for the most marginalized she is a well known columnist with leading dailies in india and is currently working on a book that captures the 25 landmark judgment that changed the course of gender equality in india nishtha holds a masters degree in international business from university of nottingham uk and bachelor's in economics from delhi university we'll be discussing with her today the impact and role of technology viewed through the twin lens of gender and democracy we'll also delve into the key roles that women can play in this new world of multiple voices and choices welcome nishtha to podcast democracy rules Thank you thank you very much Rakhar um well a little bit about my story i want to make it sound like a story but it's really not a story it was an average indian life i grew up i was born and brought up uh, and raised in delhi largely with a few years here and there i went to school in the city i went to college in that city i come from a household where the development background was very very um dominant as it is course in the house but i went to work on for the private sector for the first few years of my life so i worked for the government for a bit and then i worked for the private sector for a very very long time and i think that's the story that eventually it was just one fine day where i realized are what is it i'm not really singing the song that i came here to sing so why don't i go back to something that i had harbored for a very long time in my mind which was working for the un it was just i think the coming together of many things Uh, in the universe that in 2012 i made that big shift i did come into the un as the advisor to private sector partnerships which is not the most traditional way to come into the un but by 2012 uh, 15 uh, you, you know i was heading un women which is i think like journalists would say my beat and uh, un women is as you introduced is the entity of the united nations that works on 
gender equality and women's empowerment. I know it sounds like a very complicated set of words together, but uh, we really work on everything that impacts women differently, uh, that impacts women disproportionately, uh, and everything does, and we'll, we will talk about that as we go forward. So we work on the larger issues that the UN does, which is governance, uh, the building and the keeping and the sustenance of a democracy and everything that needs to go in to make sure that uh, women participate in public life, in social life, uh, they have economic, political, cultural, social rights, which basically means that we work for 50% of the population. So though we're a very new UN agency, we do work for the largest constituency uh, in the world, which is half the, the world's population. So that's a bit of what I do at UN Women. I've had really the fortune of heading offices in India, Bhutan, Maldives, Sri Lanka, which are a very geopolitically diverse set of countries. This is the first time in, I'm in the Asia Pacific in East Timor, which has its own uh, journey. And it's very interesting that I speak to you from being the youngest democracy in the world in a conversation with people and with me who have had the chance and the fortune to belong to the oldest democracy of the world. So this is a conversation really, this almost sounds like an intergenerational conversation between the young and the new on something that's very close to my heart, which is democracy. Some of the issues that UN Women looks into, particularly I know that we're here for a conversation on technology, which is not really my area of expertise, but it remains an area of deep, deep interest because it's one of the things that have affected women very differently and very disproportionately. But as you said, it also offers us that opportunity in history where we probably, if we use this well, we can level the world in better ways or we can build back better, as they say. Thank you for sharing that. I think in my work, uh, I, I work with the politicians and uh, in our programs that we work with, I think around 70% of the people who join our programs are women. And uh, I remember this conversation with uh, one of our sitting a member of parliament, women member of parliament. And I was asking about the trolling, how do you take care of it? And uh, she said that sometimes it's just it's too much. So sometimes we just have to just keep the device away because you can't even block also after a point. So on one hand, it has become a very strong tool, uh, technology to give access, take your message to the last person or the other in the remote areas. But on the other side, it also becomes like a suffocating space and a lot of harassment also happens. So how, how do you see this? How do we uh, see the path in the next decade? Because it's also an evolving space. So how do you see this? It's true. It's an evolving uh, space, Prakar, and you point out some of the most uh, larger problems that we have as women in interacting with technology. But before we really get into what happens on an everyday, right? I mean, and we'll speak about trolling and we'll speak about cybersecurity. We'll talk about even being a woman and handling technology myself at a very personal level. But it's important that when we speak of technology, we understand that uh, we're not speaking of a monolithic term. There is no person called technology who's who behaves the same, who's one person, who has a set of characteristics. Uh, technology is different things to different people, but some of the most common aspects of technology is access. How much access do you have? It may be available to you, but it may not be accessible to you. Even if you have accessibility and availability, you may not have control, right? The fact that in India, a far lesser number of women own smartphones and do not control technology that they consume, neither in terms of uh, the asset itself, nor in terms of technology. And of course, understanding is, you know, in what languages do messages come to you? How much do you consume? How do you consume? 
Now let's pick the average Indian woman, right? Um, and the average Indian woman is not me. It's someone in the rural landscape who has access to a mobile phone, but she doesn't control that. It's available to her at certain parts of the day and she uses it to connect with the rest of the world, but the rest of the world in a very, very small controlled, uh, controlled way, right? Now that's the average person we're talking about here. On the other end, of course, there are people like me, like you gave an example, a member of parliament, but across all levels and all these big parameters, Jom English may get the access, availability, control. On all of this, women do far, far more poorly than men compared to men. We own lesser technology. We control lesser technology. We access lesser technology. It's lesser available to us, but we understand it equally. I mean, a very good example is in our Indian households, right? And I'm sure for all people, for you and me on this podcast, somehow you will see that our mothers equally use technology as much as our fathers do. And they're very quick to pick up how to put a voice note, how to forward a picture, how to connect with their sisters. So the fundamental notion that women don't understand technology has to be rebutted completely, refuted completely, because that is not what evidence says. That's not what research says. In fact, what research says is that 90% of tech decisions at the household level are influenced by the woman in the house, directly or indirectly. The problem really lies is that those making technology and those who control technology don't want to appeal to this group in a certain way because they don't see them as primary decision makers. So there's, of course, this big gap in the market of what we think, who consumes it and who actually consumes it. But there's also an actual problem along the four parameters. The fundamental question, if I may read into your question, is is the offline world very, very different for women than it is for men, right? Now, you see, uh, the fact that in maybe in the 1980s, the offline world was a world that was controlled. It was for those who knew. It was very, very different in what it, in how it presented itself, right? But today we're looking at a very different uh, worldview. Today, with the advent of technology, with how it's gone forward, it would be wrong to assume. And why would it be difficult to assume that all the biases that we have in the offline world is the same as the online world, right? We've carried forward our prejudices. We've carried forward our, um, you know, our biases with the garb of anonymity. So why on a road, if I'm walking alone and there's a group of men passing a lewd comment. I can see them. I know who it is. I can point out who they are. It is given now those set of people the garb of anonymity to do exactly that in greater numbers. So the trolling example, it's a very interesting conversation. Are women troll more globally? Yes. Right. So the percentage of women who are online are trolled more, but there are lesser women online. Now, one very important thing is um, that we investigate within our own psychology. Why do people troll? Why does anybody troll, right? And the Atlantic did a fantastic piece of research, and they came up with two reasons to why people troll. The first fundamental fact that they put forward is trolling is not by set of sociopaths. It's not people who are sitting into a room and trying to make a living. Trolling is a phenomenon that is done by ordinary people. And they said there are only two reasons that people troll. One is just bad mood. And the other is trolling in itself is a byproduct of the internet that leads to more revenue for tech companies, right? So this is not a phenomenon that just men are carrying out. This is a product by companies that benefit from it. 
सो यू सी दैट इफ देर इज अ कॉमेंट एनी कॉमेंट आप कोई भी एग्जाम्पल ले लीजिए इफ देर इज अ कॉमेंट दैट स्टार्ट विद द ट्रोल इट्स ट्वाइस एज लाइकली रिसर्च सेज इट्स ट्वाइस एज लाइकली टू कंटिन्यू इन टू अ सीरीज ऑफ ट्रोलिंग मैसेजेस वर्सेज अ पॉजिटिव मैसेज सो इट्स बिकम ईजियर टू यूज अ ट्रोल टू जेनरेट अ ट्रोल and women in any circumstance like this benefit are disadvantaged because there are a very set set of standards and stereotypes that we know that to hurt women you talk about their character you fat shame them you body shame them i mean this has been going on offline forever throughout history and today we've put an economy to that online we've put a bunch of people to do that we know that uh, politics across the world like you said is run by troll armies every single party in the world across today has their own social media army and the reason i use the word army is with a certain amount of um, both disgust but it is an army right because they are defending uh, they are on the defense and they are on the offense and so we know that it is not by chance it is not by default that women are trolled more it is absolutely by design uh, that women are a victim um, and therefore have disadvantaged from the internet more than they have they have benefited for sure but really are on the disadvantaged side also uh, because these two were we've just managed to carry forward the bias and actually make a market and an economy out of it thank you for sharing that i don't know if you remember a few months back one of our member of parliament was carrying a handbag of a certain brand and uh, like she was trending next that that same evening at night that why do you carry this like louis vuitton and uh, yeah and then i sp- like i spoke to her next day and she was saying that this will keep happening we can't do anything and next day i think after a couple of weeks there was a photo of i think five uh, member of parliament standing at the parliament and doing a uber pool but that did not reach that much but the louis vuitton thing like literally was viral it was trending on twitter so like you said the good thing doesn't reach so much while the other thing which is not bad also but the people have all the choice to carry whatever they want but a certain section in the political space did that uh, i think one interesting thing uh, that you shared about our mothers knowing technology so well and sometime when i come back home and uh, my mother would have watched something on youtube that how my bones can be strengthened by something and sometimes she goes into a very different youtube viral and then she wants to apply that on me or my wife and uh, sometimes i fear that is it the right thing also because we don't know whether this is the right information or wrong information and i often sometimes ask her ki mother what is your source she says i saw it on youtube and then she doesn't know who youtube what is the source but so how do we also uh, be aware of the misinformation that comes to that and that's i think one example that happens at home and uh, we laugh about it because most of the things are organic so what will it uh, impact but on the larger scale of things so much misinformation comes up and uh, we have some people in the country also in india who are working on uh, misinformation or breaking uh, these that news but how do you see that it's it's true you know it's true for all our mothers my mother sends me and my mother and my mother's sister both you know i think they have a little troll army between themselves they always send me articles always youtube information on 10 foods that can avoid cancer 10 foods that can cure cancer so in the end i'm like who has cancer in between the three of us and what who are you talking to why are you sending this information right uh, so of course but but you know what's important uh, because there are some very important words that you use there is one you said misinformation we're going to break it down the second you said truth we're going to break it down the third you said viral right now i'm going to try and establish the relationship between those three factors 
What we know for sure is that the truth mostly is boring. Boring things don't go viral. And misinformation is interesting, right? So the whole act of going viral, or if you break down uh, what going viral or virality means, the functions of it, the features of it, uh, we've automatically eradicated from that a sort of sensation, uh, a sort of truth away from it. Not to say that everything that goes viral does not consider, does not have truth, but truth as a larger feature does not has lesser propensity because of its own appeal and the nature of it to go viral than misinformation does, right? So there is a character to each of these three words that is in deep contrast to the performance of a democracy. Now, what is tragic is that as people consume information for fact, the whole nature of fact and fiction is dying, is but also the use of misinformation and disinformation as strategies, right? The internet today represents the largest failed state in a democracy. And, uh, and it's important for us to understand that misinformation and disinformation is a strategy. The fact that our mothers are consuming some far end of it and trying to use it for good is a very, very small example. But if you put it, if you throw it up at a macro level to see how are states performing, how are elections being run, how are people winning votes? It appeals to those three factors, right? The relationship between truth and trust, the inverse relationship between truth and virality, and the proportional relationship between misinformation and things going viral. So I, I have to give you a very, it's a funny example, actually it just happened yesterday. So someone put this post, uh, a friend of mine who's a journalist, who's not a journalist, again, we can go through definitions of what makes a journalist today, but uh, who's a journalist, he put up this post where he said, uh, Karl Marx had a sister who was a very participative in Olympics, and she's called Onya Marx, O-N-Y-A, Onya Marx, right? And in my understanding and reading of Karl Marx, Karl Marx did not have a sister called Onya Marx, right? So for whatever worth, uh, with some intellectual curiosity, I, I googled, and, and I understood that it was a meme. And so I responded to that Instagram message with a crying emoji, uh, which is laughing and crying, you know, that emoji, we all know what I'm talking about. And this person immediately responded and said, What's funny about that? Now, I had not even realized whether that person had put up the post or that story, realizing it was a meme and intentioned it to be a meme and not to be the truth. But there was nothing to communicate uh, and there was nothing to decide whether it was a part of, of misinformation uh, or disinformation. We must distinguish the two. It was a part of some naive joke that I then fulfilled with some level of intellectual curiosity. But it brings to four, that small example brings to four the entire dilemma of today and how it affects women differently, right? Because we know that women have lesser exposure purely because of their ability to uh, network with the world outside, to speak to a set of people who have the same level of exposure, time, leisure, right? Women spend um, almost three times as much as men in unpaid labor in the household. So it's not like they have all the time to sit around and watch everything. The kind of content that women are stereotyped into consuming versus that men consume. As a combination of everything, we know that women are at the more sensitive end of consuming misinformation and disinformation to be led to believe that it is the truth. Now, that when it put in context with the fact that women do influence a lot of very solid decisions at home is a very potent combination that can go wrong. I'm very happy to chat about it, but it's a very, very potent combination if it goes wrong. And it's a very brilliant and pleasant combination if it goes right, because then what you've done is you've been able to reach to the unconverted and bring them to the right side 
and they are decision makers in their own little micro setups. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful point, uh, the way you connected the two. Um, I'll go back to the democracy part that you shared. That I think you will uh, know Harari writes about uh, that, that citizens are being reduced to consumers uh, because of multiple things. And I think these big tech firms have monopoly on, I think, a lot of things that we are consuming in terms of information, the way we are thinking. And the more citizens turn into consumers, they will not have their own individual opinion, which I think eventually will also distort the political discourse. So at some level, technology has democratized the system, but it is also making it very uniform. If you also see, uh, I think uh, I was briefly in the US for a while and I think same time in India also, the extreme right is using a language of a certain kind. The extreme left is responding with the same language. So that the tenor of the language is not same. So you are against something, you are against maybe a hate, but you are responding with that hate only. So at some level, the discourse is dying down. So how do you see that part of it? Because for me, sometimes it becomes very tricky. Like in next 20, 30 years, the divide between the, the different political ideologies is just becoming so strong. And a uh, couple of, I think, days back, uh, we were just talking that how the discourse within the parliament, the friendships of MPs have gone down. 30 years back, the member of parliament from opposing parties used to be friends. But now they're not even friends. Like they don't dine out together. They don't meet in parliament. It's like it's a battleground. And I think a lot of it also comes from what is it that you're showing to your followers? How are you messaging them? So how do you see this? Uh, like the whole technology in the last decade has changed the political discourse, reduced citizens into consumers and made us not think from the human side first and maybe my ideology has become more stronger, which I don't know about also. See what exactly is my ideology? But someone has told me this is my ideology. I have bought in uh, through social media, through some media channels. So this whole discourse has died down at multiple levels and not just in India, across the world. So how do you see that? Any thoughts that you have about that? Well, you're right. You know, in the, in the words of a former Senate of the former armed uh, services in the US, he says it beautifully. He says, we're in an information war that must be fought on steroids. And that's true. We are in an information war. 60 to 70% of the US, and if you even come back to the Far East, 60 to 70% of average consumption of information for us comes from the internet, right? And it comes from sources that not necessarily are journalists. Again, you know, this whole profession, the, we, while we've gone through the democratization of information, we've also gone through a certain democratization. I'm using the word not very positively here of who is a journalist, who can give information, who can give out stories, right? So we've brought in a whole new set of people who don't have the ethics of that journalism, who don't have uh, the, the knowledge uh, or the first-hand knowledge, who are not on the ground, but are reporting back in some sense, right? This is, again, two phenomena at the same time that create very potent combinations like the one we spoke about earlier. But what we have seen today is... Um, you know, before we really get into your question, is also a sense of what is happening globally in terms of a democracy, right? I think it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that we're in some sort of a democratic recession. This is pretty much the 16th year in which uh, countries have fallen behind uh, by any by the standard of the report in freedom that they have gained. We know that in countries like Hungary and Turkey, elections have ceased to be democratic. We know that in continents like Africa, since 2015, about seven democracies have slid back into an autocracy uh, uh, since 2015. So the truth is that democracy around the world as of today is shaking. Anywhere in the world, democracy as a whole globally 
is shaky. What we know is that defenders of democracy, which is institutions, are also under attack. This is the largest recession we have seen in two decades in minority rights, in press freedom, judicial independence, everything that is actually a tenet of democracy. And democracy, it is at risk in countries that have been the most ardent supporters of democracy, right? So there is no doubt, in my mind at least, or by evidence put out globally, that we are in a period of democratic decay. Now, those are serious words, those are strong words, but it globally is the phenomenon. Today, the global stage is far more tense. Russia and Ukraine are a very good example of why we are at some sort of a threat, where there are more angry leaders in position in decision-making than there are ones who are putting their hand out to make peace. Now, let's bring technology to a shaky situation, right? Now, in a shaky situation, coming back to your question, if I add technology to this sentiment, what it does is it forces someone who knows nothing or it compels someone who knows nothing believes in nothing to take a position. Now, in a world, uh, in parts of the world that are largely young, which is both you and me uh, right now, geographically placed, that's a serious, serious concern that people who know nothing purely because they're beginning to learn and believe in nothing because they've rejected everything mostly before they've picked up a position are compelled to take a position that usually is on the spectrum of polarity which means you're either or belong to one camp. If you don't belong to another camp, you're definitely in the other camp. You're either a nationalist or you're an anti-nationalist, right? Uh, There are only two camps across the globe. And what it does is when you put technology or you add the, the freedom of opinion, which doesn't cost you to have that opinion, you have two sets of wars that have a common language. Uh, And the culture of hate has more likelihood to spread than the culture of love and bonding itself, right? So we're seeing many global preconditions that really can spiral and have spiraled really out of control. And technology has played a very, very important part. And I must bring gender into it because, again, women are at the disproportionate end uh, of what this will mean, right? Because it means lesser freedom for them to speak because greater retaliation, lesser space to make a point, because there, you're right, because there is no discourse. There, there are camps, there are polar camps. There is no conversation, right? There is no dialogue. There is no exchange of opinion. And that as the largest determinant of the future of free speech in the era of technology, to me is a scary proposition, unless and until big companies, leaders across the world, don't particularly make it their agenda to deal with this. Thank you for sharing this. I think this was uh, the fundamental idea when we began in the School of Democracy, that how do people from across political lines start coming together? And what we are seeing, I think, four years down the line is that uh, a woman who is BJP aligned is being supported by someone in uh, Samadwadi parties or Congress to run her campaign. Because at the basic level i think the humanness remains the same it is just the ideology that drives you in a certain way but this whole dialogue i think becomes a very important uh, part of it and i think from there i'll also come back to the question of uh, younger generation people who were born after 90s after 2000 because they it is eventually that that generation that is eventually going to take up in the next 20 years where the direction of democracy is going and for them the experience of growing in this time who the, the, the teenagers who have grown in the last decade their discourse has been very different. At least for me, the discourse of 90s and 2000 was relatively different. So at least I have an idea of okay, this was also happening. It was not this crass at least. So 
for them how do you see youth and technology uh, coming together playing together in the next couple of decades and that giving direction to the indian democracy and i'm saying more from the point of uh, benchmarking like for us there's a benchmark that maybe we have experienced or we have heard we were more closer to uh, 90s 80s in terms of our understanding but the ones who have not even seen uh, that there was a certain kind of parliamentary language there was a certain kind of discourse when people came together uh, for them uh, what what is the hope that you see what is the direction that you see the indian democracy is going it's an interesting question right because um you you're right that you know um it's true that in the era that we lived the parliamentary democracy that we witnessed when we were younger when we watched parliamentary debates it would be open with chero shayari from both sides and you know uh, gone are those days when uh, when poetry was exchanged uh, in parliament as a way of rebuttal uh, i mean rebuttal was classier uh, when we were younger right discourse also was formed by many opinions by theoretical research by empirical research many things contributed to a discourse right and and for us setting the discourse at the un is is one of our fundamental things we do uh, you know there's a very interesting case study and for the listeners of this podcast it would be very nice to look into this case study called the pizza gate uh, because it shows that now in today's world to have a discourse you don't need more than two three opinions right two three awkward opinions can come together to form a discourse to set national discourse actually and sometimes when you switch on the tv in india it's both disappointing um but at the same very surprising on things that make it to national tv and make it to national conversation and the role of technology in it right if someone's shot you everybody is a photographer today everybody is a journalist today everybody uh, can speak 161 words and whatever the length of twitter is and have it, and that is an opinion and that is valid everybody can push back so of course in the process of what we are calling democratization we have completely left out one very very big uh, factor which is qualification right and by qualification i don't mean university degrees by qualification i don't mean education i don't mean barriers by qualification i mean the certain knowledge and that you have that you need before you take a disposition right like what it's exactly what i was saying before that we have become a generation that has gone from knowing nothing to believing in nothing and both of them both of these are extremely dangerous points to be but coming back to what is the future of the youth you know again the youth represents hope uh, they represent a certain aptitude to technology and we've all seen it in our offices the way they take up to technology the way they can create posts the way they can do they were born into technology we were the era that went from a floppy disk to a walkman you know to suddenly an ipod and the whole being able to touch and move a screen um, we've actually graduated very very quickly and it's probably because you gave the reference of the 1980s we were one of those people who were born um, in an era where everything outside moved much much faster than everything inside us we were actually playing the catching up game uh but fortunate are those generations that are born into technology uh we have nieces that were born in covid that actually think everything is touch everything will you will touch and everything will sanitize your hands that is their orientation so we have to understand that the ios of humankind has gone through a drastic change right and the youth are a part of it and they represent both opportunity but at the same time if that opportunity is not tapped very well we will not reap dividends out of it 
What is a very important conversation here is artificial intelligence, right? Because as we're working on the offline world, using and not using technology, we have begun and we're way into our course of coding the bias into an algorithm, right? And we know that algorithms are out of our control the moment they're coded. And let me tell you a very, let me point out, take this opportunity to point out a very important uh, gender bias uh, of encoding. First of all, only from the 1940s, where 40 to 50% of coding of technology was done by young women, it has come down to 22% as we, in 2018, as per the Global Gender Gap Report, right? So we've almost gone through a massive decrease, a massive leak in that talent pipeline. But when did that happen? It takes me back to the 1980s. Around the 19, first, nine, first four years of 1980s, we went through a mental tech revolution. And we came up with this image of who code. If I'm going to ask all the people on this podcast, listening to this podcast, to close their eyes and imagine a person who codes. You know, we all have this image of this guy who's sitting out in a basement wearing a hoodie, doing his champ genius thing out of a laptop. It is the coming up in the 80s of the antisocial nerd, right? The person, the man who spoke to no one, was a genius by himself, did something in the basement with anonymity, with the garb of who he was, right? That uh, led to what we call now and what we recognize is a shift from programming to programming, right? It is technology that was written for men by men, which largely was a shift from what the 1940s and the role that women played. So for the youth to participate well in technology, we must have this conversation on at least decoding the bias before it goes too far, which means that women, young women have to be represented at all levels of technology and decision-making, particularly in artificial intelligence. You know, there's a very disturbing piece of research that says by 2023, 85% of all AI projects in the world, now, which means everything that you are consuming, pretty much 85% of our, all our consumption, will deliver an erroneous uh, outcome due to the bias that we have, because that bias has been coded, right? That gender disbalance, the disparity of power, that sense of who we think it's going to be has been coded. And we know that. We know how big platforms have done it and are now going back. But for the youth to participate more than the aspects of responsibility, certain scientific inquiry, a certain intellectual curiosity, what is also more important for us to bring to light is decoding the bias as soon as we can, because it's technology that once put into use is beyond really um, our control. I'm very happy to take you through some examples of how biases were decoded as still maybe we don't even realize until it's pointed out. Thank you so much. When you said that, imagine uh, a programmer, I think for me also, it was a male that came. And uh, I like the word that you said, programming to bro-gaming, bro you said. I think that's a very bro-gaming. Yeah, I think it's a very it's an important metaphor to just imagine how we are operating. I think we do this, uh, imagine a politician. It's always a male. 99% of the time, imagine a politician, draw a politician, it's a male figure that will come. So I think that's an important shift that we have to make. Yeah. Yeah. But Prakhar, if, if I may also come back to you, you know, uh, I just want to also take this moment to understand that this whole image of the antisocial nerd as a programmer is not something that came into our minds by default. This is a design choice of the world, right? It is in the 1980s where people sat down, two men actually, that research belongs to two men, sat down and said, what makes a good programmer? And one of the things 
that one of the attributes they note in that research, which was used by big companies, by big tech companies later, was the fact that it was a person who did not like people. You could not have put a woman into that. You could not have fit. And, and that's how the image of who the programmer was, who that coder was, is embedded in our minds. That is why when we think of a politician, we think of a white kurta pajama. We don't think of a white sari, right? Despite the fact that India is a corner where it has the largest number of women in grassroots politics. In the world, we had a female prime minister much before the US celebrated, much before any corners, but we still don't imagine it. The reason for that is not because that we are limited by our imagination, is that we are led to limited imagination by the design setting of the world because it benefits them. I can connect back to what uh, Harari says that citizens are reduced to consumer and then the control of what we are thinking is being led by some, I think, few corporations. He names them also. I don't want to name them over here. But there are few corporations who will control what even we are thinking, imagining, what is our needs, what are our desires. And I think that's happening now. And as you say that, I can, I can connect to it. So thank you for, I think it will be a great insight for the listeners also. And now that we were talking about specifically around women, there's skills like empathy, conflict resolution, which are considered more strongholds of women. I feel again, it's a box that at some level, some level, I think neuroscience has said that also empathy comes more naturally. But I think uh, because of the motherhood and all that, the neuroscience has said, but how do you see going forward, uh, it will impact the world. And I don't know, how do you connect technology with this uh, values of empathy and conflict resolution? Why do we put extra baggage of empathy on women only. Uh, so there's some certain conditioning, but the feminine energy and other things, yeah. You know, we must talk about it because, you know, as we say these things louder, we realize how we've been coded to think like this, right? That women are more empathetic, women are more this, women bring more that. But let me point out something um, in technology. The whole world of at least mass media, you know, social media is performing on this polarity of like and dislike, right? So or you put up a post. I have the opportunity to like it. The understanding of not liking it, not taking that action is I may not have liked it. So again, there are mental camps, right? If the whole world has been operated on two buttons, there is no dislike button, but there is a like button and there is this invisible dislike button, right? Now let's bring the history of gender, of gender relations. The whole gender relations has meant that women have always found it more difficult to be disliked because for women to be accepted anywhere, they have to first work on this big button called like in the offline world. That is how it has been forever, right? That's why we call out aggressive women. We don't like them. So that is why when you call a hotel, when you call, look at Siri, look at all these voice assistants, they're all women. Right. Because you always assume there is this important connection that the brain has made through patriarchy that women, their voices, their presence have to be pleasant. Right. And you have to be pleasant. You have to be likable before you can be anything else. There are many leaders in the world who would not be male leaders in the world who would, would not be there if they were women. If you just change that one thing about them, they could not have made it there. They just could not have made it there. Right. So, of course, let me answer your question bits and parts that the whole offline world for women has always run between a like and a dislike button. And that like is based on all the qualities that have been associated with sex, which means what I'm assigned at birth. If I'm born a woman, then I have an ability to give birth. My ability to give birth necessarily in the socialization of my sex, which is gender, 
means I will have more empathy, I will have more care, where I will have X, I will have Y more. Uh, and over a period of time, you've used the same argument to keep women away, right? We've said that, oh, women don't are not rational decision makers, women uh, are soft uh, conflict handlers, they're, they, they're not confrontational in, enough, women don't ask enough, and some of this is true and some of this is not true. But all of these attributes that were associated with our gender, nothing to do with our sex, have been used against women to keep them away from mainstream things. Now, women can't take the tension of politics. They can't take the dirtiness of politics, right? Uh, because we're empathetic, we're nice, we're everything nice, uh, and so everything nice should be kept away from the real game. Today, we're in a different, we're in a sudden turn of events where every other attribute can be mimicked by a computer. A computer is as smart, smarter, faster, making rational decisions based on certain parameters. What a computer cannot mimic is empathy, is care, is, is a certain sign kind of soft conflict res resolution, or all that soft factors that we've attributed. It is for me a moral battle that what sides of the argument do I choose, right? Do I continue to defy that we don't relate women to these things that are a mere irrational extraction or exaggeration of their sex? Or should we use the same argument now to say, well, fine, where our skills, the so-called skills that you thought we had are far more relevant than the so-called skills that you have to the new world, right? And, and so for me, I have to be honest on this podcast that it is a moral dilemma on uh, what I must agree to. But what I can tell you is uh, if women are more empathetic, if at all that is true, and if at all neuroscience proves that it is true, it is true not because we are a woman. It is true because we could not have as a race, as half of humanity, functioned without empathy. We could not have functioned without likability. We've had to do all these things just to be on the same table as you. And therefore, yes, it is an additional burden. You know, we have had to do all of these things to be at the same table as you. We have had to outperform. And which is why I find it surprising that, but let's pick the parliament, right? Uh, every time we have spoken about the reservation bill in the parliament, and I've done this all my life, right, is defend the need for more women to be in the parliament where decisions are made. The first argument that I get from men and women equally is, yaar, isse to koi bhi parliament mein You know, Anybody can make it uh, to the parliament. Suddenly, the moment you bring in women, there is a conversation about performance and merit. So that's assuming that everybody who's sitting in the parliament is stand, sitting out of merit. Which means because they've earned their life after it. So if, if we agree that there are a few undeserving men sitting in the parliament what is the problem with a few undeserving women sitting in the parliament i'm not i'm not advocating that there should be undeserving people in the parliament i'm not saying that what i'm saying is that performance merit skills competencies suddenly become a profound conversation when it comes to women purely because we have we are expected to outperform in certain ways Women have forever had to be empathetic in all those things, which is all plus plus to our intelligence, by the way, just to be on, on the same table. So it doesn't make a, it a quality. It actually to us in many ways is a necessity 
to perform on that one big button that we've had in the offline world much before you guys have had to deal with it, which is likability. No, I think I agree. And I think someone told me long back uh, for men also to understand the privilege just by the birth, like you said, that if you remove that one gender, a lot of big leaders that we see, not just in India, across the world, they would not be there because they were born in a with a certain gender. I think that's, I think, uh, very, very, that connects very deeply with me. So when I think long back, when we began our first program, it was a program with 50% men, 50% women. And what we observed, it was a political program. So young people in their late 20s, 30s, wanting to get into electoral politics or were part of electoral politics. We felt that the conversation in the women dorms are very different than the conversation in the men dorm. And conversation in the women dorm are more around the safety, security, campaign mein kaise jayenge, what will happen, gunde ya police se kaise ladenge. So all those safe spaces are not there in the societies. Even if they are far more competent, this the safety bit of it become makes it more complex. And I think then we realize that we must have a separate program just for women. Because in a program with 50% men, 50% women, I think the speaking time of men still goes to 75% or 80% sometimes. Because there's a surety, I think, and I, I've also been a propagator of that surety that, okay, I know it. I might not know it, but deep down, I have said it so many times in my 37 years of life that I will automatically say, okay, I will do it. It will happen. This, this doubt doesn't come in, which I think uh, someone told me lately, I think a couple of years back only, I got to know what is imposter syndrome. So I, my, my education is going on. I think it is people like you that have educated me also in this sense and uh, to understand more and how do we also learn as privileged men to let go of our privilege some places. And when you talk, spoke about parliament, I think I fundamentally agree with what you said. There are 14% women in our parliaments, 11% in our assemblies. And uh, all parties speak about reservation and everything. But when it comes to like passing the bill, none of them are coming forward to do that. And I think that's an ongoing uh, challenge. Um, I'm sure I think this conversation would have uh, led a lot of people to go back. I also request that the links that you have, uh, the research you have uh, said, if you can share with us and we can also add them in the bio of the podcast whenever it is released, it will be great for people to just go and read them and understand them and see how uh, things uh, are much more nuanced than what we sometimes just take at surface level. So before concluding, are there final remarks that you have something you want to share more and uh, then we can move to the closure of it. I don't have anything essentially to share more. I think it's an interesting chat. Uh, what I do want the listeners of this podcast is to just sit back for a moment uh, and think and not assume that everything that we are seeing is a default setting of the world, right? Uh, when we particularly gender relations, the intersection of gender and technology the intersection of politics, people, profit. Uh, you know, a lot of things that we see, we assume that this is a default setting. Actually, everything that we're seeing, patriarchy is a design setting, uh, right? It is designed to benefit half the world more than the other half by one half, right? And in all of this, we have missed out information and insight on how half of the world population consumes differently, thinks differently, wants differently, for that meter, even votes differently. There is very little across the world. You know, people spend, parties spend millions on campaigns, but there is very little profound search to say, does 50% of the population vote differently or vote 
for other reasons or choose other parameters because a road built and a road not built is not the same for a man and a woman for a man it means you will still go out you will still do something for me it means depending on someone a well not built a well who is not the same for a rural man and a rural woman a traffic light not working a street light not working no two things are the same for you and me because we don't have the same starting points right it affects us differently so i think that the world will world economies democracies will work better if we invest in knowing how 50% of the population that is making very significant decisions in everyday life is influencing also decisions made by men actually consume differently interact differently want differently and i do think that it's up we're up on time on asking what women want politically economically through markets through other things and it's important that we sit back and realize what are we led to think intellectual curiosity is what i would encourage for us to go back investigate why we think of a hoodie you know basement based man who is not talking to anyone why do we think of that image what is the reason behind it who has it benefited and i think that thinking that we are encouraging here through this podcast is the fundamentals of a democracy the most important part of a democracy to me is the opposition and that opposition is not the party sitting opposite in the parliament the opposition is the thinking of the youth of a country that is the opposition and we must keep that alive particularly in great countries like ours and if we can instigate that thinking particularly for gender i think it would be a true win for me so that is my parting message thank you so much nishta i think there was a lot for me to learn and churn on the way you said and i think uh, i will i am taking back some concrete things for me to think more on i just hope i think as part of a student of indian politics and engaging with politics more closely that one day i hope like there's a vote bank for obc there's a vote bank for uh, brahmins for dalits there's a vote bank where well, there's a certain section where women vote together and we imagine that there's a block and the politician starts thinking that we have to make sure that the policies are focused on it so because it's a big part it's a 50% and imagine if 50% comes together uh, to democratically decide what party they want what uh, politician they want to choose i think a lot can change and uh, yeah and i think i hope i hope that it, it happens so i think general quality is one of the major markers of the success of democracy i think now i have to read and it will go in a very different direction so have patience with me general quality is one of the major markers of the success of a democracy a country where structures are inclusive of all population segments where women are able to contribute in the best way that they can and realize their full potential is a country that will move away from an exclusionary model of governance to an inclusive model that delivers social justice our conversation with nishta showed us how the intersection of gender technology and democracy can become the site of both conflict and conflict resolution with the appropriate intervention it could become the driver of important transformation in the growth of our nation Thank you for walking with us on this journey towards building a stable and sustainable democracy one that promises progress for all its stakeholders face to a future with a billion voices coming together Thank you so much I think yeah I think I enjoyed the conversation more than anything else and uh, it was lovely to just listen to you and thanks for coming on the show today Thank you very much thank you everybody Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Hubhopper, or wherever you are currently listening. This podcast is generously supported by the US Mission India. The opinions, findings, and conclusions stated in the episode are those of the guests and speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the US Department of State.